0: I Bought a Mountain, by Thomas Furbank, read by Peter Furbank. Forward, by Patrick Barkham. In the midst of a major crisis, as doubts proliferate around city life, capitalism, and the technological revolution, an idealistic person seeks to escape turmoil and make a living from the land. We see this story played out today in Britain as the coronavirus pandemic causes flight from the city to the countryside. An urban passion for farming is writ large in contemporary culture from Amazon's smash hit TV show about Jeremy Clarkson's safari into Cumbrian farming. Jacob Rebrink's critically acclaimed bestseller The Shepherd's Life an English Pastoral. Yesterday, by chance, I stumbled across the most well-read article on a Welsh news website. A derelict farm with 16 acres on sale for a quarter of a million pounds. A tantalising price for Londoners confined to a one-bedroom flat worth twice that. By turning a fantasy about living more naturally, away from the strains of urban existence, into reality is not a new story. It's a the recurring theme since the time of the Industrial Revolution. Where romantics such as Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth led, many have followed, seeking individual fulfilment in a suspo- supposedly simpler existence in the wider place. Thomas Furbank was not a romantic, but in his book he told of one of the most compelling and successful 20th century versions of that urge to escape to the country. I Bought a Mountain begins at a roaring pace, in the middle of a hallowing gale, and never lets up for its 250 pages. It's a book written by a young man in a hurry, and we are swept along by the power of his dreams and his determination to realise them. We first catch sight of Dufferin when Furbank visits this hill farm in the heart of Snowdonia in a November gale. An abandoned lorry is blown on its side, the bonnet of his car is wrenched off by the wind, the rain is horizontal. Perhaps the most unpromising of all, it is 1931, and the Great Depression is starting to bite. Nevertheless, the mysterious force seems to press this rough, mountainous Welsh farm onto the 21-year-old Furbank, who has just fled two years of labour in a factory in Canada. I jumped out of the car and the wind frog marched me at a run to the back door. The door opened unasked and I stumbled inside. He writes. There he met a Welshman who wished to retire from farming Dufferin, a 2,400 acre estate of grazing land on the southerly slopes of the Glidders. The train was inhospitable. The rainfall was seven times that of London, but the price for the farmhouse two cottages, barns, and land, was an alluring £4,625. £325,000 in today's money. So Furbank bought the mountain, although his daughter, Joanna, later said that the book's title was always ironic. No person believed Furbank could actually ever buy, let alone own, a Welsh hillside. The Farm's Purchase is an irresistible setup for a story of liberation that appeals to every reader. Stuck in a meagre house or saltifying office job. The story of a man braver than all of us, and perhaps possessing more money, who jumps into the drastic change of life with no planning, skills or experience. The learning curve is as steep as that hillside. Furbank is not simply moving to the mountains in 1932, but taking a job enmeshed in Welsh-speaking country, culture, and society. I was a foreigner in a land as alien to me as Tibet," he writes. The language was new to me, and, more important, so was the mentality of the people. Furbank is not quite the ingenue he portrays. Although he was born in Quebec, his father was English, his mother was Welsh, and, as he later acknowledges, he spent many holidays with his mother's friends on farms in North Wales. But he is an outsider and swiftly learns not to pretend otherwise. A scientist, a doctor, an artist, a soldier, a lawyer, all can be impersonated for a short while with some hope of success, he writes. A farmer, never. More is needed than a glossary of jargon and a studied physical expression. No one can impersonate an earthquake or an acorn, and a farmer is just as much a natural manifestation. A farmer is authentic, because they have to be. It's not a role that can be faked. This is deeply appealing to all of us, whether reading of, dreaming about, or actually trying to farm. The atavistic allure of farming also includes the freedom that can come from just being a generalist in a world where everyone's jobs seem to be shrinking into an ever narrower specialism. A farmer, Furbank writes, is a judge of many kinds of stock. He is a veterinary surgeon, a botanist, a chemist, an engineer, an architect, a surveyor, a foreman, a meteorologist, a buyer, a vendor, and an advertising manager. And the only job in which he ever really fails is the last. Furbank does not fail in advertising farming to us. A contemporary version of this tale would probably contain more personal feelings, but Furbank deftly describes the brutal business of farming and the successes and failures from each and every challenge flung his way. His writing is vivid and vital, and we see the world as freshly as he does, and learning the fascinating complexity of farming sheep when bequeathed with infertile soil and inclement conditions. There are thrilling tales of lambing, flooding, shearing, and digging sheep from snow. There are schemes to generate electricity and the electric atmosphere of auction day. Furbanks superbly evokes the excitement of selling off his sheep every autumn. The long climax of bid, counterbid, and bang of the gavel must be sustained from the first to the last. What connection is there between a a farm sale, mob hysteria, religious ecstasy, yoga, and the immunity of fax hypnosis? There is a connection, he insists. For all of Furbank's usual lack of sentimentality, there are also moments of great intimacy, written with delicacy and even poetry. During lambing, a first time mother stares in superstitious amazement at the slimy morsel of life which has so miraculously appeared, before warily approaching to sniff the suspicious object. When her maternal instinct is triggered, she licks the newborn clean, and the lamb sits, a sprawl, his legs at impossible angles, as if pinned to him by a blind man. We learn alongside Furbank. How his Welsh mountain flock is hefted to the hill, and so even though the mountain is unfenced, the sheep will not stray. We learn how, when a lamb dies, its skin must be cut off and wrapped around a twin or orphaned lamb so the bereaved mother will adopt and feed another. Most of all, though, we learn that Furbank cannot do this alone. He quickly falls in love with a local woman, Esme Cummings, who is memorably described as having the face of an elf, and as being as dainty as a Dresden shepherdess. Fortunately, this porcelain figurine in person is also as strong, practical, and as bubbling with ideas as Furbank. Ultimately, Furbank swiftly realizes that he cannot cope without his local community. Not only the expertise of his two shepherds, uh, John Davies and his son Thomas, but also a host of neighbouring farmers. In this way, I Bought Mountain is a portrait of a lost era when farming was a communal endeavour. Furbank requires his neighbours' help each and every time he gathers his sheep. Forty men assist him with sheep shearing, and for no extra payment except the food that Esme spends days preparing in the kitchen. Furbank must lend his shepherds freely to his neighbours in return. For all that has changed in hill farming since the 1930s, Furbank's experiences echo more modern accounts by farming writers such as James Rebax. Furbank encounters salesmen flogging every kind of farm technology and tonic. He also pursues diversification, 80 years before it became an agricultural buzzword. He tries farming pigs and chickens, as well as his sheep, chends badly but finds success with a snack bar he builds for the tourists flocking to the Welsh mountains. He and Esme start a trend for reconditioning shepherds' huts decades before today's boom, buying a beautiful wooden wagon with which they rent to holidaymakers. Furbank's arguments about the importance of farming are highly pertinent today. He is writing on the eve of the Second World War, when Britain produced just 42% of its own food and knew it must urgently produce more. Ever since the lifting of the Corn Laws in 1850, which allowed the importation of cheap grain from overseas, the British government has prioritised cheap food for its urban majority over self-sufficiency for the nation. Furbank's appeal for better support for farmers is the same as many current arguments, when the global crises of climate and extinction Are making an irresistibly important case for Britain to produce more of its own food without wrecking this land or any other. As with almost any book published more than 80 years ago, the ecological message or absence of it does not chime with contemporary thinking. Furbank pursues what almost every 20th century farmer regarded as his duty, improvement and modernisation. He mercilessly killed foxes, drained bogs and swamps, fertilised natural grassland and harrowed square miles of matted pasture. Over the last century, this improvement has driven wildlife from farmland and virtually eradicated flower-rich meadows in favour of grass or arable monocultures. Occasional instances of archaic language or attitudes within these pages may also grate with 21st century readers. Furbank counteracts the casual prejudices against Welsh duplicity that was commonplace among the English of the day, and his writing is suffused with respect and generosity towards Welsh people. Sometimes, however, his humour is directed against them, and he seems untroubled by the fact that his labourers will at times toil for no payment while the boss goes on foreign holidays and drives a Bentley. Furbank and Esme break the record for the fastest ascent of the 14 hills above 3,000 feet in Wales, but there are plenty of times when Esme's role as farmer's wife is simply to make lavish teas for everyone. So Furbank's farming story is not a flawless emancipation or perfect ecological awakening, but the seeds are certainly there, as what happens next reveals. Published in 1940, his uplifting tale of personal development, resilience, and strong communities was well-suited to wartime. I Bought a Mountain was a bestseller, and has rarely been out of print since, inspiring many subsequent generations to move to the countryside. Unexpectedly for any reader, its publication marked the end of Furbank's story. Before war broke out, he left Dufferin and enlisted in the army, where the resilience honed on the mountainside served him well. He was awarded a military cross for bravery in Italy in 1943. Later, writing a book about his experiences, before moving to the Far East in 1954 to work as an engineer. During the war, he split from Esme, but left the farm in her hands. She remarried and managed it successfully for many decades. Her deep love of this country led her to become an influential conservationist, and in 19. 19- 85, after a successful campaign to stop a youth hostel being built on the slopes of the Glidder Mountains, she and her husband, Peter Kirby, founded the Snowdonia National Park Society. For both Esme and Thomas Furbank, who returned to live in North Wales in the 1980s, Dufferin became their Cunfrin, a poetic Welsh concept which prosaic English struggles to translate as a place of belonging to which a person feels an intense spiritual connection. All the pragmatism of the farming life on show, this spiritual connection with the land is revealed on virtually every page. The profound fulfilment and freedom both author and his wife found in hard labour, in a place where they enjoyed meaningful relationships with all of its inhabitants, remains deeply inspiring to us today. Chapter 1 The Purchase. I first saw Dufferin in a November gale. As I rounded the spur of a hill to turn into the long valley, the full power of the storm caught the car. An abandoned lorry, blown onto its side, half blocked the road. And as I crept past, an eddying gust of wind swooped down, plucked at the car's hood, and ripped it backward till it screamed raggedly behind. The rain was being driven horizontally and struck on the windscreen. It poured in torrents over the bonnet, but left me dry. The entrance to Dufferin Valley is guarded by two lakes. The left wall of the valley is the long hump of Mulsibod, and on the right wall, higher and more rough, is the Glidders. Across the head of the valley sand Snowdon and her satellites, like maidens hand in hand barring the way. But on that first day, wild flurries of rain and mist shut out the skylines, and the steep, rocky slopes reared upwards until they were swallowed by the clouds. Every now and again, the clouds were rent like parted curtains to reveal yet higher hills, from whose every hollow and gully streamed creaming water. The wind raced like a live thing about the upper slopes, Sometimes it carried bodily away a whole waterfall, so that for a moment not a drop would spill over the brink. The surface of the twin glates was whipped into vicious white horses, and along the shores huge boulders lay scattered, haphazard, as if untidy giant children had fled for shelter, leaving their marbles where they lay. I liked that weather. I had come from two years' imprisonment in a Canadian factory, for an atmosphere of dust and artificial humidity. During summer, we automatons used to peer through the shut windows, shafts of sunlight, as they fought their way down through the smoke and chimney stacks to spill on the dirty paving like storm troops on enemy concrete. And in winter, the snow lay in the streets, her virginity prostituted under careless feet, so that she taunted us, like the slut she was with the purity of her sister in the country. The man who can strike a mean is the man who makes a dull success of whatever he undertakes. But the ordinary people, who move with the ungoverned swings of the pendulum, live foolishly and fully. My pendulum was at the fullest extremity of its arc when I came to Dufferin. The rain was a barn. The wind a caress, and the wild Welsh mountains were an elemental purge. I think I had decided to buy even before the hood was blown away. Dufferin had been described to me by an acquaintance who had heard that the owner was on the point of retiring. The place was a sheep farm of some 2,400 acres. It lay in a long rectangle along the south slopes of the Glidders, so that its upper boundary was the height of the land on my right, some 3,300 feet up, and the lower boundary was the flooding river which ran on my left, parallel with the road. There was said to be a good house, two cottages, and plenty of farm buildings, and the price around £5,000. I drove up the valley until presently I came to a stony track, which led upwards on my right in a slope of one in three. The track vanished into a clump of ragged trees a hundred feet above. They were the only trees in the valley, and among them showed a chimney. The stony road was drained by slate slabs buried on edge diagonally across the track. The first of these knocked the silencer off the car. I dared not stop, because the hill was so steep and slippery, and I was now sideways to the rain which flooded in. With spinning wheels, the car ran crabwise into a yard beside the house. The gable end of the house, exposed to the Wesley gales, was a windowless and slated from roof to ground. I jumped out of the car, and the wind frog marched me to run to the back door. The door opened unasked, and I stumbled inside. It was very dark inside. I was in a big kitchen lit by one small window by the flames of a kitchen range. At a deal table under the window, several men sat on a long oak settle. They were finishing a lunch of cold bacon and hot mashed potatoes. There was tea on the table with bread and squares of red Canadian cheese. The men were dark Celtic types, sharp-featured and with the mottled mouth which stamp the Gale and the Celt. I felt that my arrival had struck them dumb, Against the opposite walls stood an oak dresser laden with blue willow patterned plates and pewter and beside it was a grandfather clock, the hands set three quarters of an hour fast. The kitchen range was framed in huge blue slate slabs and along the mantel were thirty-seven Toby jugs. A little spruce man with a face like a withered apple sat at one side of the fireplace. He wore a homespun wool suit and very shiny leather leggings. He was the man I'd come to see. Busying herself over the fire was his wife, a pleasant-faced old lady, slight of build, and her face seamed by the work and worry of a lifetime. And to my bar retreat followed the sturdy kitchen help, who had concealed herself behind the back door as she opened it to let me in. I stared at the maid several times before I realised what it was that had struck me as incredulious. She was wearing pince nez As I shook hands with the old couple, the men at the table rose with a clatter, unanimous as Javanese dancers in obedience to a call, and swept out with their steaming mackintoshes draped around them. The maid cleared away the remains of the meal, and at once began to lay out the best china and a dish of tinned peaches. The conversation of the old man was difficult because, although he had a perfect command of English, he chose to speak in Welsh, using his wife as an interpreter. And she had a slow, reluctant air, as if one who acted unwillingly in some Faustian deal. The old man and I sat down to eat. Farm women never eat, unless secretly, and I began to tackle him on the business which was now so urgent for me. The old house was quivering under the thrusts of the wind, and the wild, remote setting had already captured my fancy, and I will hold it until I die. I had never before bought anything not labelled with a net price, and the moves and counter-moves of bargaining were quite unknown to me. I must have shocked the old farmer with my bludgeoning, but he defended skilfully, and while his wife translated, it gave him time to get his breath. I could pin him to nothing definite. He would give no price, nor would he confirm that he even wished to sell. At one time, I believe he even denied ownership. The only thing he could not deny was the letter which I had sent to warn him of my visit. The envelope, soiled by much handling, was propped up against a tea caddy on the mantel shelf. At last, I became so bewildered that I finished my food and stood up to go half convinced that a mistake had been made. But by chance, I had hit upon the right move. The farmer and his wife held a quick consultation in Welsh, and the maid was sent to the back door, where she screamed into the wind. As if by magic, one of the men off the settle reappeared. He was a tallish, thin individual. Then, and at each subsequent time that I saw him, a drop hung from the tip of his nose. The man suggested since i'd come i might as well look around the thin man was given some instructions and i was hustled out into the yard the rain had stopped but the mist still hung very low on the hills beneath the mist the air was very clear so that one seemed to look out onto the reddish brown slopes to a thick white muslin curtain whose frayed hem was naping in the wind I walked around to the front of the house, which was poised on a terrace of the plunging hillside, and looked down onto the valley floor. The twin lakes still boiled in foam and spray, and the river which threaded its way through the bottom of the valley was flooding boisterously over the few flat stretches. But the shepherd was impatient. He called to a wall-eyed dog with a grey-blue coat and turned up the mountain. I plodded behind him. I waded through the soaking russet bracken, jumped swift, swollen streams, and trod carefully where the turf was raised up by some quaking flood, force of water which bubbled through the buried rocks. Presently, we reached the edge of the mist. The outlines of my guide became indeterminate, and the dog a flitting ghost. About 1,500 feet up, we came upon a high drystone wall. This wall climbed vertically from the lakes, and then turned at right angles to follow the contour of the glitters until it swung downhill again to join the road further up the valley. It formed a vast enclosure of the lower land. It was six and seven feet high and two feet thick. In parts it ran across turf where no stones were available for building, and in other places it had been built with jigsaw artistry over masses of glacial debris. At to day, cost more to build such a wall than to buy the whole stock of the farm on either hand it vanished into the mist as if bent hurriedly on a secret errand we climbed the wall and were on the mountain proper the angle increased till i was using my hands as well as my feet and the silent shepherd led on straight upward and after another hour and a half we walked abruptly out of the mist the edge was clean-cut, and one looked back as if at a lace curtain. The mist hung in a lair between a thousand and two thousand feet, and springing from it like a score of Aphrodites from the surf were many peaks. The ground swelled up to the height of the land, and beyond the edge was abruptly cut away, so that we stood over a drop whose floor was hidden by mist. Across the void, Trafan rose out of the vapor. Trafan is a black, conical giantess of solid rock, whose caps spring like feathers to nautical stone pillars. The pillars are named Adam and Eve. They are poised over a precipice, and in a gale, it's a feat to leap from one to the other. We had struck the boundary. At the eastern and lowest edge, but westerly it reared up, till two miles away it formed the peak of Gladefach, the limit of the farm. Beyond this again sprawled Snowdon and her retinue; their lowest slopes mantled modestly in the white drapery of the mist. Their proportions were so perfect that no stranger could have guessed their height. We turned and made towards the glitter. The precipice was on our right now, and on our left were huge grassy hollows which fell in swoops around the hidden mountain wall. An occasional sheep snorted and stamped at the dog before bounding away till it was swallowed up by a fold in the ground. The peak of Glidderfach came nearer, but her towering head began to suddenly fade. Over Snowden rolled white clouds like breakers tumbling a corpse, And their spray reached out in tentacles across the gap towards us and in a moment the glitter was gone veiled from our view leaving us enticed as if by a wanton woman the hills are wholly feminine in their casual caprice their jewels must be won by pretended indifference and enjoyed with stimulated carelessness the shepherd gave up and turned downhill Our world was a few yards in diameter, and its unreality seemed as if we stood still, and the rough ground slid silently up to us and past us. An hour and a half later, I was again seated by the kitchen fire, drying my wet legs. The atmosphere was different. I wondered if I had somehow become attuned to the vibrations of the place. The old farmer spoke to me in English and himself pressed me to the most buttery of the muffins, to the best jam, and to the currant bread. He volunteered that he would sell at once with immediate possession for £5,000, and that he would leave enough on the mortgage to enable me to take over his flock of sheep at a valuation. As I only possessed exactly £5,000, this help was very necessary to me. The sheep valuation is a custom particular to a certain type of hill farm. Hill farms are of two sorts. There is the farm with a fenced mountain, and there is the farm with the open, unfenced mountain, such as Dufferin. On first thought, the fenced mountain seems more desirable. Here the flock cannot stray, nor can a neighbour's sheep crowd in to graze. But the upkeep of a mountain fence is heavy, Iron posts and heavy wires are speedily eaten away by rust. The rainfall is tremendous in the Welsh hills, and the water is driven by the wind under each and every flake of spelter and into every crevice in the post. Constant tarring only delays collapse, and it's a heartbreaking task to carry tar each and every day to 3,000 feet. The snow is more spectacular than the rain, Packed hard against the fences by wind, it becomes heavy as ice, and flattens long stretches under its weight. And the sheep too cannot use their intuitive weather sense. In a gale, they are barred by the fence from moving over to a lee slope, and must remain cold and miserable, plastered up against the wires or buried in drifts of snow. The only real advantage of a fenced mountain is that the ingoing farmer is independent of evaluation. He can buy sheep anywhere in the open market and turn them onto his mountain, knowing that they cannot stray. If there were no fence, the flock would be scattered in a few days all over the country. But even though the new sheep would not be able to stray, they would be ignorant of the weather signs and of the paths and sheltering places, so that a hard winter might well kill off a third of them. The open mountain carries a permanent flock which knows the boundaries, each year, the ewe lambs are kept to enter the flock and the four-year-old ewes are sold off to make room for them. Thus, there are always four generations of sheep on the mountain. Every farm has its own earmark, a combination of slits and notches in the two ears, which is not duplicated within a 20-mile radius. And to aid more distant recognition, the farm, too, owns a pitch mark. This is a brand either of letters or of symbols, which is stamped each year onto the new shorn sheep. The permanent flock stays at home by a mass hereditary, which is rather like the intuitive cleverness of birds. Each ewe has her own beat, and it will always be found near the same grassy hollow or sheltered gully. She brings up her lamb in her own little range, and when in her time she is sold, the lamb carries on the tradition and eventually bequeaths the domain to her own offspring. This legacy, multiplied by thousands of individuals, ties the flock to its home. I used to wonder what kept the original sheep of the flock on their own ground. But in those distant days, labour was very cheap. Lads with dogs would walk the hills all day to shepherd the sheep within the boundary, and at night they would pen the flock in sections in the innumerable stone pens whose ruins still dot the hillsides and gradually the need for shepherding would become less and less as finally the flock ceased to stray. The hereditary which springs from this early shepherding is still strong. Sheep from adjacent farms naturally mingle along the common boundary. the dog is sent along the dividing line, the sheep make for their respective sides like hares parting before a comb. The outgoing farmer does not give away his laboriously acquired flock instinct, He knows that one dare not stock the unfenced mountain from the open market, and he levies blackmail in the shape of an acclimatisation value. Hard times have reduced this premium, until today it's about 15 pence added to the market value of the sheep. I asked to see the buildings, and the old man led me first to the old farmhouse, which stands immediately behind the present one. I stooped to enter under a shaped headstone, and found myself at once carried back four centuries. I was in an old Welsh manor. At one end of the long, low room, an immense fireplace filled the wall. Acres of peat must have been cut to keep the great fed, and the tremendous chestnut beam which held up the chimney was blackened with the smoke of generations. The ceiling was held up by beams of chestnut a foot thick, mortonized into the other and pegged, Upstairs were three rooms, divided by rough-hewn carved wooden screens, and the rafters were pegged to the purlins with a skill long dead. The heavy roof was of clumsy slates quarried off surface rock. The quarry is nearby. I have cleaned the lichen from the face of the rock, and strange inscriptions are exposed. There is a bardic inscription in cruiform letters, many initials with dates long past and addresses whose ruins now stand as monuments. And in one place, there is the crude outline of a ship of the Stuart period. A shadowy artist has recorded a visit to Port Maddock, then a thriving shipyard 16 miles away. The chestnut logs tell of a vanished forest. Often, as we cut peat or dig drains, we come across chunks of twisted wood, the bones of long-dead trees. From the old farmhouse the farmer and i walked down the hill to the road and i was shown the two cottages which are sturdy built of stone and roof with purple carnivore slate which is the best in the world the cottages were let to quarrymen for the farm hands slept in the dufferin house but i determined to have my house to myself and to let my men live in the cottages the three sets of farm buildings were made in the same solid way and the cattle lying on their beds of bracken were warm and contented as they chewed the short, sweet upland hay. I drove home in a dream that night, a prince on the threshold of his kingdom. A few days later, I met the old farmer in a solicitor's office, and with a few minutes we had settled at £4,625, and enough money was left on the mortgage to enable me to meet the bill for stock. After the valuation, under the benevolent guidance of the lawyer, I wrote my check. Each letter a weighty seal. My eggs were in one basket. True, it was a very big basket, but much of it was as yet unseen. The old man took me out and gave me some whiskey. He wished to take me at once to see the lowland farmers who were wintering yearlings for him and as soon as we started off in his car, I was glad I had had the whisky. On a hill farm, it is necessary to send away the ewe lambs for their first winter. Unlike the lowland men, we do not put a ram to our lambs, because it is imperative to give the stock a good start, if they are to survive the rigour of mounted winters. Thus, the ewe lambs spend their first winter down in the mild lowlands, unhampered by the burden of gestation it is said that ewe lambs do best on new pasture and i soon saw how well the wintering farms had been chosen some farms had as few as twenty-five yearlings one had as many as eighty but on none of them had sheep been kept during summer and cattle had grazed down the grass to a height handy for sheep to tackle many fields were newly seeded down and some farmers had fields of rape, to which the lambs would be turned to during the dead weeks after the new year. The lambs were sent away from early October to early April, and had only been down a few weeks when I was taken around. I noticed that none of them were turned yet onto the best pastures, and learned that they had to be broken to it slowly, used as they were to sparse mountain grazing. As I was introduced to the various farmers, I found out that they had wintered lambs from the same flock for year after year. The lowland man is supposed to look after the stock as if it were his own, and he is not paid for any that die. The conscientious farmer thus retains the confidence of the hillman, and is assured of sheep each year. I saw over three hundred yearlings that day, and agreed to pay the arranged price when the time should come to fetch them home. The price averaged ten shillings a head. Before I parted, the old farmer that night, we arranged a date for the valuation. I was worried as I drove away after saying au revoir to the old man. I had certainly plunged into the water without testing it first with my toe. I knew nothing of farming in general, and would find this particular type hardest of all to understand, for its methods were traditional secrets, and were not set forth in books for inquiring students. I was a foreigner in a land as alien to me as Tibet. The language was new to me, and, more important, so was the mentality of the people. I wondered whether I should ever be able to probe their thoughts, and to persuade them to accept me. For bit by bit, I was realising the importance of neighbourly relations in such a place as Dufferin. A dozen or more men were needed to gather the sheep off the mountain, and farms nearby sent their men to help knowing that Dufferin would in turn help them. I wondered what would happen if I were boycotted. The place would be unworkable, and I suppose that I should have to clear out at a heavy financial loss. And as an example of my vast ignorance, I even considered the possibility that my sheep might be stolen wholesale. I did not realise the difficulty of stealing mountain sheep. Representatives from several farms help at gatherings, and theft is thus impossible in the pens. Well, it would be almost impossible for one or two thieves to drive a bunch of mountain sheep down from the hills, and I did not realise either that a sheep's earmarks is as conspicuous to a Welshman as if the owner's name were in luminous letters along the ewes' back. But the most reassuring point of all didn't even occur to me. Sheep-stealing would be an unthinkable act for a genuine Welsh farmer. A bishop would be as likely to rob a gas meter. I was also worried about the casual way in which the sheep I was to buy were turned back to the mountain. It seemed to me that they might go off anywhere. There was nothing to stop them, after all. It was later that I learned how easily Welsh sheep break out of any enclosure. But they are tied to their own mountain by a hereditary which is many times as strong as the force of the best fence. And I was puzzled, too, over more immediate problems. None of the men at Dufferin were staying on, except one lad, and the more I thought of the labour problem, the more I felt that I should need some sort of working bailiff. Even in those early days, I deplored the unfortunate type of the gentleman farmer. Kipling should have written of him. But I could not expect to plan for work for my men, when I knew absolutely nothing of that work myself. In the interval of learning, I must surely have a foreman. And I gave myself a promise that I should not degenerate into the farmer who walks around his buildings once a week on Sunday mornings to show his guests his animals. His animals. His guests.